I love that one. Um, I, I chose it as a New Testament reading today because of that speaking the truth in love and that, that theme of speaking the truth in love is going to go very far along with what we're talking about this afternoon. But let's go ahead. Let's do the gospel reading here and then we'll get into the message today. The gospel reading comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. I'm reading from the uh, ESV or the English Standard Version of the Bible this morning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from, from the Father, full of grace and truth. This afternoon, I want to focus on those two words, grace and truth. That's going to be the focal point of what we talk about today. Uh, these, words, these two words represent cornerstones of our faith in Jesus, right? If you think about it, grace, where would we be if not for grace? Uh, we, we, wouldn't have a faith, we wouldn't have a faith in God. We wouldn't have the opportunity to have a relationship with God if it were not for him having the grace to send his son to die for our sins in our place so that we could have a relationship with him. And because God's extended such grace to us, we're also supposed to operate in, in an attitude of expre as expressing grace toward others as we come in contact with them. And the Christian faith is also built on truth. The entire foundation of the Christian faith is built on the idea that there is absolute truth, that God is the author of absolute truth, and that he communicates the vast majority of that to us through the Bible that we read. And as Christians, we're expected to speak truth into the world, into a world that more and more seems to reject the truth of God in order to follow the lies of the devil. So those two things are, are pivotal to our faith. And in order, to, in order to properly live out our Christian faith, we need both. We need grace, and we need truth. The biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are full of examples of Jesus acting lovingly toward other people and showing grace toward them. They're also full of examples of Jesus teaching truth, the truths of God's word to people, and encouraging others to live out those truths in their own lives. The question I have for you today is, which one of the two is more important? Now, you might go ahead and say both, and that, that's great, but if we're honest, most of us gravitate more toward one way or the other. Most of us have kind of a natural leaning this way or this way, right? So what's your natural leaning? Is it grace one, truth two? Is it truth one, grace two? The Jesus standard, as I already applied, is grace one, truth one. They have equal place in God's kingdom. It, that verse again at the end of John 1.14, the word became flesh and took up a residence among us. We observe his glory, the glory of the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. 
This is our goal. This is a standard Jesus has set. But most of us as Christians are not there yet. In fact, like I said, most of us, if we're being honest, we lean more one way toward the other. One of the two comes very naturally to us, maybe, and the other one is one that we have to work a little harder to develop in our own lives. Have you ever met someone that's high on truth and low on grace? If you've grown up in the church, I can almost guarantee you you've run into at least one person like this. In fact, you may have stopped going to church for some period of time because of running into a person like this, right? So um, it, it, th these are the people that are like, you just need to tell them how it is, and they just need to deal with it and put up with it, right? Or I told them the truth, and sometimes the truth just hurts. That's the way it is. Like, there are people out there like that, and they, they, they give us a bad name. Maybe you've been one of those people at some point in time in your life. So, but these people, they, they miss a very important truth, and that is that presentation matters. Presentation matters. It takes a really big person to overlook poor presentation and get to the heart of what you're trying to communicate to them. And so that's one of the dangers of being high on grace, high on truth and low on grace. Or maybe you've met people that are high on grace and low on truth. These are people that are very concerned about other people's feelings. And, and there's nothing wrong with being concerned with other people's feelings. But sometimes if you're really high in grace and really low on truth, it gets taken to an extreme, right? And so we see someone engaged in some kind of destructive behavior, and we're not willing to approach them out of love and try to help them because we don't want to offend them. And so eventually, in the spirit of not wanting to offend anyone, we can easily start disregarding truth altogether in the name of love and grace. And it's very easy at this point to buy into the attractive theory of moral relativism. You all have heard of moral relativism. What's right for me is what's right for me, and what's right for you is what's right for you. So you can do your thing, and I can do my thing, and they're both right, even if they kind of contradict each other. Well, moral relativism is very, sits on a very weak foundation that's pretty easy to, to fall apart. Um, Noah, can you come up here for a second? So I asked Noah to come up here because it, it can be easily demonstrated, the problem with moral relativism, which is two people together, all right? So let's say that Noah and I are, are having a fight. We're not very happy with each other, so we're having an argument. And all of a sudden, Noah decides that the right thing for him to do would be to hit me, right? So you know, okay. So, but see, I decide that being hit is not the right thing for me. So now all of a sudden we have a problem, right? Because what's right for him is to hit me. What's right for me is to not be hit, and so one of us is not going to get what's right for us. So thank you very much. So see, the problem with moral relativism is that you don't live in a bubble, and I don't live in a bubble. If you live in a bubble, maybe we could try to make an argument with that. For we don't. Like, our interactions interact with other people, too. So there has to be some kind of base level of truth that we all, all operate in so that, so that we can function as a society, as a people. There's also the idea of cultural relativism. This is one that became attractive for a period of time. And that idea is that, that there is no right or wrong. They're all culturally specific. So what someone does in a certain culture might not be acceptable in our culture today, but it's perfectly acceptable then where they are. So how dare we judge that culture because they determine right and wrong differently than we do. The problem with cultural relativism is there are an awful lot of atrocities that have happened throughout human history that were culturally acceptable at the time. You know, you, you don't need to be a history major to know this, right? If you were in like the early to mid-1800s and you lived in the state of Mississippi down there in the Deep South, it was culturally acceptable for you to go to market, buy a person that was imported from another country, and make them your slave and your property. This was culturally acceptable, but we realize that this is not morally acceptable, right? Or think of Nazi Germany, how Adolf Hitler convinced an entire nation, so many people in there, that it was right to go and exterminate a people that were different than them. 
So cultural relativism, it doesn't hold up either. There is truth. There is truth that is transcendent over time, over culture. So what is truth? What does truth look like? Jesus put it this way very simply in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So as we start to look for truth and what truth looks like, we look toward Jesus. Jesus is also our standard for grace. In Luke 23, 34, when he was hanging on the cross being crucified and the soldiers were literally gambling for the last piece of clothing he had, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus is the author of truth and the author of grace, and so we look to him as our standard for how to live out truth and grace. So as I thought in the Bible, where is an example I can think of where Jesus shows you truth and grace at the same time and is illustrated really well? And it brought me to, to John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11, and I want to read that for you. This is a story that's probably familiar to a lot of you. This is Jesus and the adulterous woman. So John 8, verses 1 through 11. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning he went back again to the temple. A crown soon gathered and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery, and they put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down to the ground and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer, so he stood up and said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down in the dirt and wrote again in the dust. When his accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, Neither do I. Go and sin no more. Now, a couple of things to look at in this passage. First off, if you were reading along in your Bible, this passage probably has little brackets around it. And there's a footnote at the bottom that says, the oldest and most trusted manuscripts do not contain this passage of Scripture. And that's true. If you go back to some of the oldest documents we have of, of the Bible, this passage is not in there because this passage was not in the original Scriptures as they were written. Later on, it started showing up in some manuscripts in a certain spot of the book of Luke, and then other manuscripts that showed up in the spot with John. And if you're reading John chapter 7 into John 8, this is actually like an interruption to the narrative that's going on. And if you pull this out, it reads as a more straight narrative through that passage. So why is it in our Bible today if it wasn't in the original manuscripts as it was written? Well, there's a lot of scholars that believe that what happened was this was an actual event that happened in the life of Jesus. And it was passed down orally from generation to generation. And someone eventually decided this is such an important story, we need, we need to have it in writing so it does not disappear in history. And so they wrote it down within there. Now, anytime we run into a passage like this, a scripture where we know it wasn't a part of the original manuscript, we treat it a little bit differently than the rest of scripture, right? So we can use this to support things we see in the other parts of the Bible, but we would never develop a theology or, or a doctrine out of a passage of the Bible that wasn't in the oldest manuscripts. So, but we see this, this illustrates and this kind of fits with what we see from Jesus over and over again. So it's very complementary to the way we see him live out his life. So let's take a closer look at what's going on in this passage because it says they were trying to trap him. Right? If you look back at Leviticus chapter 20 verse 10 it says, if a man commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, both the man and the woman who have committed adultery 
must be put to death. You see, in Jewish law, adultery had a mandatory death sentence. So it wasn't like you got the option, like, okay, you might get the death sentence, you might get life in prison, you might get this. It was mandatory. It was also in Deuteronomy 22.22, it was reiterated again. If a man is discovered committing adultery, both he and the woman must die. In this way, you will purge Israel of such evil. So this, this was the law of Moses at the time. This was the law that was supposed to be carried out if someone was caught in the act of adultery. Now the problem was Roman law, which the Jews were under the Romans at the time, Roman law did not allow any other nation to carry out their own executions. The only person that could, that could pass on a death sentence was, was Rome. And so they're bringing before Jesus the dilemma, like our law says she's supposed to be stoned. Roman law says she can't be stoned. Which law do you follow? Do you follow our law or do you follow Roman law? That was a trap they set for him, and they thought they had him. And at first glance, it looks like Jesus sides with Roman law and, and sides against Jewish law. But there's a part of the Jewish law here that Jesus actually takes advantage of. It's Deuteronomy 19.15. You must not convict anyone of a crime on the testimony of only one witness. The facts of the case must be established by a testimony of two or three witnesses. So Jesus, when, when he makes the challenge, the people go away one by one and they're all done, and he stands up, what does he say to the woman? Where are your accusers? Where are the witnesses? There were no witnesses, there was no death sentence, and so the woman was allowed to go. So Jesus figured out a way to show grace to this woman. He showed grace to her by allowing her to go and by not condemning her. And at the same time, he showed truth because when he sent her away, he said, go and sin no more. So he extended grace, but he also expected her to go and live her life differently moving forward as a result of the encounter she had just had. Like I said earlier, most of us are not there yet with that perfect blend of grace and truth. But our responsibility as followers of Jesus is to continually try to develop the one that doesn't come naturally to us so we look more and more like Jesus. So I tried to come up with a visual illustration here that would help with this. Um, we'll see how well this goes with one hand. Um, so, so I have for you here, I have, I have truth. Okay, that would be our yellow color. Our pink over here is going to be grace. And then in the middle here, I have Jesus, and Jesus is the perfect blend of both of them inside here. So if we were going to talk about teenage me, what did teenage Dan look like? Teenage Dan had a whole lot of truth and a little bit of grace. All right, remember I talked about that whole, like, sometimes the truth hurts? Teenage Dan might have said that to people before. So, so if I look now, if you look at, at Jesus here, let me see if I can do this. Little, little different, not quite the same. Whole lot of grace, little bit of truth. No, whole lot of truth, little bit of grace, sorry. So, my job, though, right, so I'm trying to become more and more like Jesus. So, Part of my maturing process and my faith over the last 20 plus years has been learning to put more and more grace into my walk with God and in how I interact with other people so that over time I look more and more like Jesus. It doesn't mean I stop pursuing truth. Goodness knows, like I spend my time trying to study the Bible, find out truth so I can convey it to other people. But I know that as a follower of Jesus, I need to continue to try to put more and more grace into how I interact with others so that I'm working to become more and more like Jesus. And, and that should be our goal is in our walk with God. Wherever we are, whichever one you kind of side toward, lean toward more, 
be working to develop the other area in your life so that we can be like Jesus. We can be this blend of grace and truth interactions with others. So why did I pick this topic out of all the topics we could have talked about this week? Why did I pick this topic? Well, I picked this topic because I feel like it's very important for our church. See, the overwhelming majority of churches in America are formed from a group of people breaking off from existing church to start a new one. Sometimes this is intentional. Sometimes we, the churches intentionally, they grow to a size and they say, we want to plant a new church in the area. And so they grow to a certain size and they say, okay, we're going to take a certain group of people from within our own congregation. We're going to send them out over here and we're going to kind of like duplicate what we're doing here in another area, another venue, and trying to grow the reach that way. But many times churches, sometimes churches, they're, they're brought about by a division within a congregation. A portion of the congregation leaves and starts a new church. And that, that's, that's what this group right here is in the midst of right now, right? Someone that broke away because of a, a major theological difference and is starting a new church. If you look at the structure of a church that was born out of a division, you can usually see what the major issue of the church was if you start to look at the church's structure. If you look at like their founding documents and how they're structured. There was one church I know of where the, the church, the, the elders in the church, they had, they had a group of elders that were elected within the, the body. And then they had the pastor, too, who was the, the salaried person there on staff. And there became a, a wider and wider division between the elders and the pastor as far as, like, direction for the church and things. And it eventually got to the point where there was a fracturing. And so the pastor and a small portion of the congregation left and started a new church. And as that new church started to get going and started to form, one of the things that happened was a pastor decided, we are never having elders in this church. Right? So all of a sudden we see there, there, there was a wound. There was a wound caused at the old church, and so that there was an overcorrection being made in the new church where, okay, we're going to make sure that doesn't happen again. We're not going to have that office of elder in our church. There's another church I know of that, that, that had broken off from an original church. Their leadership structure also involved elected elders and staff pastors. The interesting thing in their leadership structure was that when decisions were made that needed to be decided by the leadership of the church, like the, the pastor kind of ran the day-to-day, -day, but when it came to like major decisions, they all had to go before the elder board the elder board would vote, and if there was a tie, the pastor would vote. If there was no tie, the pastor wouldn't even vote. He'd be at the meetings, he would lead the meetings, but he didn't even have a vote unless there was a tie. This speaks of a church, that, of a group of people whose founders most likely came out of a church where they felt like the pastor was abusing his power. And so they sought to set a structure together that, that kept the pastor's power in check so that there wasn't this power struggle going on. So it's one of the big dangers when you start a church is that the founders recognize the issues of the previous church and then they overcompensate in the other direction. And so as we're looking to try to start something out, I want to make sure that we as a body are not overcompensating in the other direction. I don't want to see us make that same mistake. This is why I'm speaking about being filled with grace and truth. Most of us are coming out of a denomination that sought to either ignore or redefine truth in order to show grace toward a certain group of people or certain groups of people. So it's going to be very tempting for us to significantly emphasize truth, which is a good thing and we should emphasize truth, but, to, but we should, should not underemphasize grace in our approach and how we interact with other people. That's a trap we can't afford to fall into because it will hurt our ministry as a church going forward. We wanna be a church that's characterized by being full of grace and truth, both of them together. And since truth is what comes more naturally, I would guess, for most of us because of the breaking away, then we need to make sure that we are rooted in grace and everything we're doing is rooted in this atmosphere and this attitude of, of kindness and love toward other people as we communicate with them. 
I don't mean we compromise the truth, but I mean that our truth is rooted in the grace of God. Just like we see Jesus. Jesus was uncompromising the truth, and you can't say that Jesus wasn't gracious toward other people. And once again, just like we talked about forgiveness, the church is one body made up of many individuals. So if we're going to be a church that's full of grace and truth, we need to be individuals that are full of grace and truth. So we can't do it if I don't do my part, if you don't do your part as well. So, so how do we develop that? I wanted to kind of give a clear takeaway today, something you can walk out of here today and say, this is one thing I can start doing today to start trying to develop the area of my life where I am weaker, whether that be grace or truth. And when I thought about it, I'm like, the best way to start is to pick one of the four biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. So you've got four choices. And commit to reading through it this week. All right? if, you, if you want to try to get through the whole thing, Mark's the shortest. Mark's 16 chapters. That's the easiest one. Matthew's 28. He's probably the longest. Um, but pick one and try to read through it this week on your own. And when you read through it, what I want you to do is I want you to be looking intentionally for where Jesus shows grace and truth. For some of you, this might be your first time reading through one of those books. For some of you, you may have read through it a hundred times. But read through it with the mindset where you're actively looking for where is Jesus showing grace? Where is Jesus showing truth? Am I ever seeing him showing both at the exact same time? So that's what I want you to try to do this week. Now, if you decide to start with Matthew and you open Matthew chapter 1, it's a genealogy. You're not going to get a whole lot of grace and truth out of that. But you're going to see Jesus' family line. But keep going. You'll see plenty of examples as you read through of grace and truth. If you're reading through and something doesn't make sense, if something doesn't line up and you're like, I don't really understand that, you can jot a question mark down in your Bible, you know, right there. You can write a note, whatever. Um, Ask someone. Ask someone else you know if you've got a question. There is nothing I would love more than if someone came in here next week and was like, Dan, I was in Matthew 4 and I got a question about something. Like, I love conversations like that. So if you've got a question, feel free to bring it here next week and we can have a conversation about it. Whatever it is, go through read through and look for those instances of where Jesus shows grace and truth. And then when we get together next week, what I want to do is we're going to spend some time going, talking about different ways to read the Bible. So I'm giving you one today. We're going to go through and we're going to look at one of four specific um, books, and we're going to look at it with a very specific lens. We're looking for grace and truth. There's a lot of other ways to read the Bible, too, and there's a lot of other ways to connect with God through it. So next week what we're going to do is I'm going to spend some time presenting a lot of different ways because what you'll find is that probably one, two, maybe three of the ways might connect with you, and not everyone's going to, because not all of us connect with God in the exact same way. So next week, we're going to take a look at that and see, like, how you can connect with God through the Bible, but this week, you got a very specific look at grace, look at truth, and Jesus' life as he lives it out. Remember, Jesus is our standard, and he is full of grace and truth, and I hope you're willing to pursue that in your life as well. Let's close this time in prayer. God, I thank you that you are a loving God, a God who is full of grace and truth. God, thank you for sending your son to earth so that we could see his example of how to live our life, so that you could give us a model for what it looks like to live perfectly, to live life the way you intended. God, I pray that you would help us as we pursue you in our own walk. God, for those of us who who truth comes very naturally, help us to be able to develop grace in our lives so that we can extend grace toward others. God, for those of us who grace comes very naturally to us, help us to develop truth. Help us to learn more and more of your truth so that we can live that out and have that as our perspective for how we live. We thank you, God, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.